Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kujudenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. My name is Isaac Kujure Nuaboa. You're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. And this is season five. And again, we're bringing you intellectual deep diving conversations with the change makers who are leading Africa's transformation. And today I have a very, very brilliant guest with us. Someone who went to the same high school I went to, which is one of the best high schools in Ghana. Um, BP147. Shadrach Frimpong, who is the founder of Coco360, um, a triple threat to the problems in international development he's been described as. He's been described by Kofi Annan as the embodiment of what youth leadership is. He is really an inspirational person for me and a lot of young people across the African continent, having been born as a son of a peasant cocoa farmer and a charcoal seller, growing up in very difficult environments in Takwa-Bremen, went on to pursuing education is one of the best universities in the world, winning awards all over. We're going to delve into his story, why he's doing what he's doing in helping to create a new model for community engagement and community development. And his journey from the time of high school, I knew him till now. It's an amazing pleasure to have my fellow Akatechi on the Chenya Africa podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you guys. Yeah, I mean, it's a very small world, right? Like, one moment you are in high school, you're in Opoku, I try to, like, you know, get you to the dining hall. In another moment, you know, we're here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, you are the second person from Opoku who's been here. The sec- the first, the earlier, is oh, nice. Joshua Amponsim. I don't know if you know Joshua, who's also a very good friend of mine. Oh, I've heard about him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's also. And he's a BK. For the people who are listening to the podcast and are confused, Opokuwari School has a very interesting numbering system. But that is one of the things that makes the school quite unique. So Shadrach is a BL completed the school in 2011. BK is between 2009, I think. Yeah, because of Joshua, the one year that we had. Yeah, yeah. Jo- yeah. Joshua was recently leading the climate unit at the UN Secretary General's office. And he's recently started a fund on climate justice, which is one of the biggest youth fund on climate justice. So he's doing amazing work. And we're going to talk about Shadrach today. So I want to start off Shadrach with high school. Because when I knew you then, most people don't know this, you started something called Scholarships and Talents Club. And you were part of a small unit of students who were trying to teach other students how to get global opportunities to education. At that time, when you imagined yourself 
probably 18, 17 year old. What did the future look like to you? What did you aspire to be? The narratives that, you know, some of us who have been in some of these places or young African, you know, the platforms we get to share are not ones that we can easily resonate with. So it's really nice that, you know, we can have a place like this. Um, back in high school, you know, so Scholarship and Talent Club, I was actually a co-founder. There is uh, my good friend, Freddie Abua, B079, who also went to, you know, he went to Alabama State, great guy. When I came, he went to Alabama State, went to the University of Washington for his PhD, spent a couple of years at Novartis and MIT doing research. I mean, big shot guy, now has a PhD. He's now at uh, McKinsey, like, he's a partner, like a big guy over there. So we all started, and I think, you know, the motivation for us starting it really came down to like a simple goal for us, you know, which was, we knew that and we were very grateful for the opportunities that we could get in Ghana. But we just also knew that we had outsized ambitions that let's just say it would be kind of hard to achieve in the kind of system that we have back home. You know, back home, we have a great educational system and all of that, but it's mainly education, right? Purely focused on that. And we felt that if we had the opportunity to get an education that went beyond the confines of the classroom, that also emphasized leadership, you know, that emphasized impact, that emphasized innovation and discovery, some of these things really be a game changer. And we started a scholarship and talent club after we went through the process. In fact, we partnered with Ace Consult Education USA and then Timeline Trust. Timeline Trust was actually the pillar behind that. It started Richard I and the folks. But essentially, when we created it, it was with that mission. After we had benefited, you know, Fred went to Alabama State, I went to Fisk and later transferred to Penn. So it was a very wonderful thing that, you know, we're able to get started. And it's, I'm always happy to hear that is still alive. And every now and then you get text messages from, you know, uh, some of the students. In fact, there's a student here at Yale, Justice Kodia Chinebua, uh, who was a member of the Scholarship and Talent Club to know that the class held him that way. But yeah, at that age, it was really like, yeah, this is all great. Ghana had given us a firm foundation how to tackle the material. Um, like right now, I'm in medical school. Is it hard? Maybe if you mean hard in terms of like the amount of time you have to put in, maybe yes. But material, no. You go through a poker, you're sitting in Kregato and Soweto, you have to memorize mountain of information. <laughs> and you have to learn how to draw amoeba and all that. Nah, this is great. I love medical school. But that was a foundation we had. And, you know, Ghana was great for that. And so for me back in the poker, I was just really sitting there looking at the opportunities, learning how to learn, mastering that skill. And then thinking to myself, okay, now what's next? I, I knew that one thing that I'm very grateful for, even though I grew up poor in, you know, materially poor settings, I was pretty much wealthy. Our family was pretty much wealthy in every way. You know, my parents gave great advice, strong social support. I was socially wealthy, spiritually wealthy. I mean, every other way, very wealthy. And so my father encouraged, my parents, my father, my mother, they all encouraged the importance of, you know, having a heightened imagination, thinking beyond the impossible, right? So I know in the book, I tell guys, Charlie, someday me, I will go yellow. And they'll be like, yeah, Charlie, we there. We are trying to get into Ken UST. You, this guy, you have not been realistic. I was a library prefect. And so I'll go to the library. I'll read about Einstein, read about Stephen Hawkins and some of these people. And man, I'm like, it's easier to read the biology gas and the biology books and the books we were given and to pedestalize these people, right? Like, 
you read about Ben Carson and you're thinking, man, you know, these are white people. Maybe like, like there's a formula called Faraday's constant. And I'm like, I'm reading that thing. I'm not reading any Owusu or Kweku constant or any kind of constant. Why is that? <laughs> you know, it's almost like somebody's producing the knowledge and we're supposed to like memorize it. Okay. And I thought to myself, when I look at the schools these guys studied in, is because it really pushed them. These are folks that went to Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge. And we have a great system. I thought, okay, if I could get an education in places that could help me to position myself like that and be able to make a dent in the world, that would be it. But Opokuari just gave me the mindset of, you know, it's all boys' school. You know, Isaac, if you remember, it's like, you just walk around the walls, there's no woman bothering you. You just feel like you can do everything. Other at was only thing you have to worry about is maybe like you mess up and then boys laughing at you or something. But for the most part, you have a group of guys around you who are probably some of the best students in their country. Like they knew they had to get into Pokuare, they have to have the best grades. And so they work their tails off. But having such people around you who are equally brilliant, it just like inspired you to take on anything that you could. And Pokuare is also where, you know, I, for me, I learned like the importance of teamwork, as I talked about, you know, scholarship and talent club. Fred, I couldn't do it alone. Teamed up with Fred and actually Daniel Okuma, B-Boy. And then we reached out to Timeline Trust. You just learned how to create things. So I had a great time. But you, for you, for instance, how, was, how do you say your experience at Opokuari was? I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious how your experience was beyond going to the dining hall. Let's, let's put that on the side. Maybe. <laughs> Daniel, did you do high school in Ghana, though? No, I didn't. didn't. Oh, I mean, I've been smiling since before we started the podcast. When you started, I mean, now you have explained the BKs and the BLs. So I'm just listening and learning. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel wasn't born in Ghana. Daniel went to high school, education, all of that. And, uh, but he also has an interesting story of how he came to Ghana. And eventually went to the university in Ghana, which is a very funny story. Oh, nice. Um, but he probably, yeah. So he has to tell his story himself. But for me, yeah. it, was a good, it was a good environment to initiate me into adulthood. I mean, I think it has its own problems. But what I'll give credit for is that, like you, I got exposed to what is possible, right? I also spent a lot of time, and I tell a very similar story like you have to everyone. I spent a lot of time going to the library. And in the library, I read about the history of science. I read about Copernicus and I read about Newton and I read around whole new science renaissance and it inspired me to want to do something. And that is what motivated me to want to travel abroad. Unfortunately for me, it didn't happen. I got a scholarship, by the way, but I, my mom couldn't pay my flight. And so I eventually couldn't make it. And I eventually had to, you know, stay in Ghana. And But that was a great foundation that motivated me and kept me going. And I mean, we are still here um, doing that. So that's my reflection. But to carry the conversation on, I bring that genesis of a scholarship and talent club to create the foundation for a trajectory of you giving back. You went to a school, you saw an opportunity, and then you gave back through the Scholarship and Talents Club, which I don't know, but by at least my estimation, at least from the time you've gone, 50 students through the club, that's probably bare minimum, right? Have gone to some of the best universities in the world. And that was something that you started. 
and you wanting to fix, you started something that probably a lot of people don't know called Students for a Healthy Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was a great foundation also to mobilize students, volunteers to come and help with HIV advocacy and all of that. And then you started the, um, the research organization, which now I hear is a big organization, the African Research Academies for Women. So what my question is, is that through all these moments, what was inspiring you to wanting to give back every single time? I mean, that's a good question, right? So it's fascinating when you think about it. I mean, what the power of like teamwork can do. Um, because in all of these, I remember the African Research Academies for Women. So students from the Africa, my good friend, Kalechi Umoga, Joseph Adediba, we also at first, we came together, we started it. Kalechi is now at Harvard for internal medicine residency. He also came to Yale Medical School. Then Joseph is also, I think, um, a radiology resident in New Orleans. Great guy. But, you know, that's a great question. The African Research Academy, same thing. My friend, Kojo Sapon, who is a neurosurgery resident at Vanderbilt, myself, we came together. We, you know, we put that uh, idea together. But the motivation for all of them really has just been, I, I think this is probably for most people, right? When you grow up without a little, or you don't grow up with a lot, the little that you get, there is an instinctual instinct to try to, you know, give back. Most people find it easier to say, oh, you know, man, let's take some time. Uh, let's make all the money first. Let's finish a career and all of that. At the end of it, you can go give back. That's nice. But when you grow up in poverty, in your brain, I mean, you're talking about how your dad couldn't afford your scholarship, right? Like, of course, in, in, in hindsight, you've ended up great. So you're exactly where you needed to be. But in many ways, when I think about situations like that, I tend to think, okay, when you have an impulse and the opportunity to create something and you delay on it, the fact is that somebody that would have benefited and be able to possibly like do something for their family or their community, they're not going to have the opportunity, right? Like, because you didn't act. If we didn't create a scholarship and talent club, like you mentioned, so many students that have had scholarships go to Dartmouth, Yale, Harvard, all of these places, they wouldn't be there. And we all know, at least I can speak for myself, when, you have the, when I had the chance to come to the U.S. for education, it, it took my family's life from here to like all the way there. I mean, I'm not the only person who studied overseas. My younger sister, you know, also came to the U.S. for undergrad. She went to Tugulu College worked at BlackRock. She's now doing a master's in enterprise risk at uh, Columbia. All of this to say that, you know, one of the things that I quickly realized was that in many ways, like, whenever you had the impulse, whenever we've, we've found the edge to say, you know, create something, for me, I just, like, acted on it because I grew up, I didn't grow up with much materially. And many people poured into my life to make it possible for me to be where I am today. So a combination of having a lot of people believe in you and at every step making it possible for you to, you know, continue. And then knowing too well that tomorrow is never promised. So you don't act in the moment. If you push things to say tomorrow or the future, that future may never come. For me, those two things are, you know, what basically like drive me and at every opportunity thankfully 
I'm very fortunate to find friends, classmates who are equally passionate about some of these things. And they say, dude, let's just get this done. Let's just keep things going. And I, I love building things with people. I love um, doing stuff with people of similar, you know, drive and passion. Um, so those three things have just been what has been foiling it. Yeah. You know, I wanted to zero in on the part around poverty. Recently, you've been writing a series of articles trying to demystify what poverty is. From the experiences that you've just outlined, what is the one thing that most people get wrong around poverty and the conversation around poverty? I mean, good point, right? I think, you know, most people assume that health is a given, right? Like, we solve poverty with the mindset that people are alive to actually participate in that kind of whole process. And that's the biggest thing, right? Because the, most of the people that actually have been addressing some of these poverty alleviation, whether it's cash transfers, education, whether you name it, most of the innovations we've had had come from the West. So, and in the West, you and I will agree. I mean, so I spent some time in the UK. I was so surprised. You're in the UK. If you're sick and you go to the hospital, nobody ever asks you of, nobody asks you of your, you know, the cost or anything. They just take care of you after that you go. Like, I was so surprised, right? No, in the UK, healthcare is free. Like, literally, the government tax people and all, like, you are treated and you are gone. That will not happen in Ghana, even with the NHIS. Now, in the US, it's a whole different story, though, because in the US, healthcare is expensive, even employer-paid options. So I understand. But even in the US, most people that are crafting these interventions... Their healthcare packages have been taken care of by the companies. They are joint employee, employer-based insurance. It makes sense, right? So most of the time, they don't worry about this. If they are sick, they just check in. They will get their bill, get it for their health insurance people. Life is good. In the UK, Netherlands and many of these other countries, I'm pretty sure, have similar stable health systems. So there is a temptation to think that that's the case for places like in Ghana or in the, a lot of these developing you know, in our side of the world, you know, the lower and middle income countries. That's unfortunate because if you have somebody, say, from the UK creating a poverty alleviation innovation, they're just going to think with the brain of somebody in the UK and say, oh, fundamentally, healthcare is good, taken care of. So let's focus on education and some of these things. But I kid you not, in Ghana, it's not like that. Most people wake up and they work hard just to, like, survive, <laughs> like... People work hard to save money to take care of themselves so that they can actually like have food. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions that we have to eliminate is the fact that it, money is the indicator of poverty alleviation because it is not. It is rather health. It's, it's kind of like very simple when you think about it, right? Because we say this all the time, health precedes wealth and all of that. We know it, lingo, lingo, lingo. But fundamentally... Sometimes, I mean, I've seen economists who have written papers to prove that health should be the first and only thing you start from. But sometimes I think to myself, was that even necessary? Like, it's common sense for you to know that. And it's so intuitive for you to know that if you want to give somebody a cash transfer or whatever, if you want to educate somebody, whatever innovation or you want to come with it, if they are not alive, yeah, or they, they are very sick and bedridden. They can't even participate in that. They can't use that innovation. So that's literally the leading to me, the biggest misconception. 
Now, the second misconception is everybody, people throw poverty and they lump it together. That's like a doctor lumping all medical conditions together. In medical school, one of the first things they they teach, they've taught us is that acute conditions are different from chronic conditions. If you have a family member who has diabetes, that's a chronic condition. Diabetes is, you have to, you treat it and manage it for a lifetime. If any of you know diabetics, right? If somebody has like, let's say, hypertension, there are some of these conditions that are just, you have to manage over your entire lifetime. It just doesn't vanish. They are chronic. That's literally why we call them that. And so, but they are different from acute. Acute is today I'm walking around and I have a headache. All of a sudden, you got a headache. You buy yourself some paracetamol, life is good. That's an acute medical condition. In fact, most of acute conditions, you don't need to go to the hospital. You just pass by the pharmacy next door and you are good. So it's the same thing with poverty because poverty at the end of the day, I mean, it's fascinating when we think about it. When we were young, we used to like, in high school, I remember me and Fred, we used to like throw these phrases around and we'd be like, Charlie, me, I don't study in Ghana because poverty is a disease. Like we joke around with that term, but interestingly, there's actually a connection there. And the connection really is in the analogy. In the same way, there's acute poverty and chronic poverty. So every time somebody tells me chronic poverty is what we also call extreme poverty. So whenever somebody is telling me about, oh, we are doing this work on poverty alleviation, I'm like, what kind of poverty though? Because until you have defined it, then you can't even start. If you have not defined the problem, how are you going to come up with a solution to address it? Basically, if you've not come up with even a solution to address it, address it. How are you then even going to be able to like, you know, in my opinion, like talk about a solution to even address it? You have to define the problem before you can think of the solution to address it. That's the second thing. And so what we have is that everybody's saying poverty, 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 but they never, you never hear, okay, we are addressing extreme poverty. If you were not well, somebody will have to define and say, oh, I have diabetes, and the solution to that is diabetes medication or metformin. In the same way, we have to say, I'm addressing extreme poverty, and the solution to it is this. Because once now you are able to identify the solution, then guess what? We can actually measure and then manage it. And we know you can't manage what you can't measure. And so what we've seen in the development space is that we throw around, we waste so much money. For me, that's very frustrating because we are shooting blindly. We are shooting blindly, and it's like poverty alleviation is like this big field without a compass or a direction. It's become a touchy-feely good thing, and my perspective is that good intentions and feelings are not enough because the unintended consequences are very dominant. When you look at the literature, every year you see a news report of people in the global aid sector who are raping. Oxfam has had scandals. You know, there have been all these kind of people in in the aid sector, who go to other countries, go and sexually assault and, you know, harass some of our children, our people in the aid sector who go there, or they may have good intentions, but they will just literally wipe out the community's culture and way of doing things. So the second thing is we have to define and be clear on the different types of poverty that we have. Then we can be clear on the solutions and the approaches to it because we've been shooting blindly and be wasting too much money. And for me, the last part is 
what everybody argues and everyone's like, oh, poverty, the reason why we've not ended poverty is because resources are scarce. So let's raise money. Listen, man, Ghana is not a poor country. You must be kidding me. I grew up in the village and I grew up on the farm. My parents were cocoa farmers. My job was to go and scoop the cocoa. I like this. Sometimes I think like God gave me the life I had because when you've actually lived through it, it hits you differently. Like you can't tell me that a community that grows cocoa, the same cocoa that powers Ghana's $1.8 billion cocoa industry and a global chocolate industry for Hershey, Mars, and all these people. Ghana is the world's second leading exporter of cocoa. Ivory Coast is number one. Without their resources, the wealthy countries don't exist. Like, see, this is not, I know sometimes people try to make it political, but I me, mean, I just bring it down. A lot of these Western countries, Hershey is downtown Pennsylvania. When I was in Philly, I used, we used to go down there. All these countries, take Switzerland. Switzerland is mainly like identifiable by their chocolate and stuff. If, when I was in Lausanne, we, we, we used to go down there and taste, you know, the newly made chocolate and all of that. If cocoa farmers don't exist, those kind of companies don't exist either. So, it is not a problem of scarce resources. You don't call a country that fuels multi-billion dollar global industries poor. You don't call communities that fuel billion dollar global industries resource poor. The problem is inefficient or poorly activated resources. We've not activated those resources to benefit the needs of the community. But it's not a resource scarcity problem. And so everybody's pushing cash, 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 let's raise money. But that has its own challenges because then you're going to create a situation of dependency, right? And then you're also going to have an issue where everybody's saying let's raise more money. But me, my whole thing is I look at the global aid chart. The folks at the Brookings Institution and the Rockefeller Foundation are saying that the amount of money we need to end extreme poverty is $80 billion. Okay, that's nice. Then at the same time, you tell me that the amount of money that we pour into aid every year is $140 billion. And we need to now also raise more money. Are you okay? Like, <laughs> this is like common sense. That we need $80 billion to end poverty, but every year we pour $140 billion into aid to end the same poverty. Meanwhile, you are telling me we need more. We are already wasting $60 billion by your estimation. So that's my problem. And these are all the case because of one root problem. The one root problem is there is a misalignment between what the community, the folks on the ground really need and what the funders and the NGO people and the theoreticians. And people try to come sometimes come at me and I tell them, my friend, listen, I intentionally, this is why I spend my life getting a lot of degrees. I intentionally got a master's degree in non-profit leadership and I worked my tail off to come out as the best student because I want you to understand that I've studied this thing too. If you come from me from a place of theory, we've all studied the same thing. But the theory is different from what my grandfather and my uncle in the village are suffering from. And this is a problem we have, right? So it's something I'm very passionate about because... You and I, all of us on this call, you know, we grew up in Ghana, we spent time in the country. You go to East Legon, cantonments, and some of the parts of the country, things are fairly okay, right? But if you go to the northern region, <laughs> and if you go to the western region, and you go to some pockets of the country, you see poverty, 
it will actually change your perspective uh, from an academic and also a practical standpoint. So for me, the reason why most for a long time I've been very quiet about it, but I'm just like, you know, every day I wake up and there's some study being done on the cash poverty transfer or something. And I'm just like, who are these people, man? And all of us as Africans, it's almost like most of us, you know, we are just happy to follow the train. Some of us, most of us even work in the industry, never challenge it. And it's just like the same thing over and over again. So it takes, it takes me back to one of Chinua Achibe's quotes, which is, and, you know, Chimamanda also, you know, harped on it, right? There's a danger of a single story. And then there's also an issue where if we don't tell our own story, somebody will tell it for you. That's brilliant. Let's take that into what you are trying to build partly to solve that problem and how you came to pioneer this tree system model that is focused on community development. In 2014, 2015, tell us about the journey of coming to Takobramai, engaging with the community and starting Coco 360 and what the organization stands for. Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, I think, you know, the premise for Coco 360 came from the same kind of things that, interestingly, we've been touching on. Uh, for us, it was a very simple thing. Look, how do we come up with something that the people are driving it themselves? And it's also self-sustainable. And also, to me, tangibly gives the people the power to make their decisions. I say tangibly because... Right now, a lot of people in global development, everybody's preaching decolonize global aid, decolonize international aid, decolonize global health. That's all great, right? That's all great and nice. But no decolonization is going to happen if you are not bringing some money to the table. We, as especially Africans, most of us, we always are angry and we are writing about how the West is doing this, doing that. But at the end of the day, you are going back to them for money. You have not figured out a way to make money from your own system to keep your own stuff going. In fact, my father would say, well, start association and your hand is still in their mouth. So they'll bite you. And then you can't, feed, you can't bite the hand that feeds you. How you bite it? Exactly. So that's the problem in the aid sector. So we started with a goal of, okay, if these are the premises we're setting out, for us, it was even a simple experiment. We thought if we did our work well, we'll literally make, um, you know, change the development dynamic and change the development landscape and then bring a lot of equity uh, into the space. So we sat down with the community and then we thought, okay, how can we do this? There is a school. And for me, initially, my vision was work with the community to create something that can be scaled into other parts of the country. We didn't want to just reinvent the wheel. When you look at Ghana and many developing nations, I would argue that while our systems are not the greatest, and I mean, which, whose country, which country system is the greatest? Most of us have lived in the West. Nowhere cool. So we, I've, I've always felt that Ghana has a great educational system. I know people will like smoke me alive for it, but I swear by that. A lot of my academic accomplishments because I had my foundation in Ghana. If I give birth, my children will go back to Ghana for high school. Nobody will change my mind. So, because it just makes you disciplined and tough and all this kind of no-nonsense stuff, and I love it, because that's how I've grown up to be. And so, like, when I look at that and I say, okay, 
there is a school in the community. This community also farms cocoa. You also have a need for health. Fair enough. Fair game. Let's start with school. So we start with, let's start with health. Initially, it was only a clinic. And then our premise was that if you wanted to benefit from, so we're trying to create, you know, um, a simple community-based health insurance model where if people work on the cocoa farm, then the farm revenues can help to like subsidize their medications, eliminate user fees so that if you went to farm and you're not feeling well, you can just walk into a hospital and get seen, taken care of. You only have to pay something after we've really diagnosed and given you a prescription for medication. And even that medication will then be subsidized. In Ghana, you have a problem in many African countries. Even just using a health facility would simply cost you. We call that in user fees because you used the facility, even if you just walk that way. And so because of that, in our side of the world, most people go to hospitals to die. They wait till this very last minute. And that's why we have a lot of chronic conditions on the, on the continent. Uh, that's why we have a lot of um, some of these chronic conditions, like, you know, a benign tumor, if it was treated early and noted early, wouldn't progress to a malignant tumor. And acute hepatitis, if it was seen early, wouldn't progress to chronic hepatitis. And if you have a condition that's chronic, it means month on month, the person has to come back for medication. The biggest, the reason why healthcare systems struggle with cost is chronic conditions because it costs a lot to pay medicate to give medications to people with chronic conditions every year. So for me, when I went back to Ghana, that was my premise: create an innovation that made sure that most conditions were diagnosed really quickly and early. And I realized that the barrier to that was a lot of people were concerned about, you know, the user fees. Oh, I'll go there and they will charge me five CDs. Why waste my time? I will wait when I really feel very bad before I go. Exactly. Um, so that was the initial premise, and that was, you know, how we started. But we realized something. Just as the existing literature supports, we were struggling with high uptake. There was not a lot of people who were coming to work on the farm or participating in that whole scheme we had set up, benefit from the clinic we had built by working on the farm. And why is that? We realized simply because humans as we are, we don't like delayed gratification. Health insurance systems in the West work because like in the UK, you're automatically taxed <laughs> by the government. Or like in the US, your employers pay it. If the individuals had to pay it directly themselves, it would have never happened. Because in Ghana, we did a feasibility study. Most people are like, me, I only get sick every five years. God is my health insurance. Like, God be like, by the grace of God, I never get sick. Why should I go to hospital? <laughs> and because of that, why should I pay for your health insurance and you people, your dancing, let alone go and work on the farm? I will not do it. And so the farm enrollment was very low because we realized that the motivation or the benefits that they got were, number one, unpredictable, and they were not immediate. So, and here is where people didn't realize, and that's where the school came in. Because we realized that we had to couple it. It's funny, this was some of the principles from uh, uh, physics that I took, coupling. You had to couple that with something that was immediate and short-term. And those were educational benefits uniforms, books, every day when their children go to school, transportation expenses, when their children are in school, nutritional needs. Guess what? Those things, they see it every day. Every day they put a new uniform on their children. 
Every day they see a bus pick up their children. Every day they have like, they see their children go to school and get free food, nutrition while they are in school. And that's because they work on the farm. So now we couple the health insurance benefits together with those educational benefits. And guess what? If you look at our annual report and our data, enrollment shot up from, enrollment, people going to farm, the percentage shot up from like 25% to like literally 98% in the following year. Because why? Again, we had addressed one of the challenges the global development sector struggles with, which is a misalignment between what the people on the ground want and what you think they need. <laughs> we solve this by simply listening to them. And this all came from our place and our belief that if you wanted to end global poverty, you really have to start with healthcare. How people get out of poverty, it is their own problem. It is, when I say it is their own problem, I mean they are the ones who have the answers. We all have relatives who have become successful musicians. There are people in Ghana who don't have the kind of education that you and I, we all may have. But my guy, Sakode has money, you understand? Shatawale has money. <laughs> he didn't care about going to Cambridge or my Yale or any of that. But he's good, you know? Like, and so, but for him to be able to be the Shatawale or the Sakode or all these influential things that they've been able to do, they have to first of all be alive. They have to be healthy. And so our premise and our belief has been that let people be alive and healthy. Develop a system for them. They will figure it out. Somebody may even choose. In fact, in the communities we work in, some people, after they stayed along healthy enough, they got enough money from their own farm by working hard. Everybody has different aspirations. They travel to Dubai and they are doing good. Some guy I know, that connection, went to America, is chilling. Another person I know went to a crab built. Like, my whole point is, it's not everybody that wants the same thing. Not everybody wants education. Not everybody, but for them to have their individual goals and aspirations, that gets them out of their current conditions of poverty. They first have to be alive. And it's, the opposite is actually also quite dominant. Because when somebody is not well, the amount of money they spend on medications and taking care of themselves is insane. That literally keeps them in poverty. So that's why we came up with that model. We felt that the Ghana National Health Insurance Scheme has done a great job, you know, taking care of people in the urban areas, giving them health insurance premiums. But in the rural areas, people can't pay health insurance premiums. They don't have money. So we came up with that model to ensure that, you know, people in rural areas can have a healthcare system that is self-funded by themselves. And how do they fund it? You have to work on the farm. You are not going to get our insurance card unless you work on the farm. And you can imagine, these people, their job they do is working on the farm. Every day, 24-7, they wake up, they go to farm. The same way you go to work, somebody goes to school. Farm, like my father will tell you, the farm is my office. <laughs> and so for him, for them, when we created it, it's like a no-brainer because they only have to spend like the whole month 45 minutes on a farm with other farmers. And they are the ones who vote and decide what the money, the revenues from the farm should be used on as part of the health insurance package. You would think it's a no-brainer, but guess what? It works. People didn't say it will work. Ghanaians are lazy and all of that. We proved the opposite though.
it worked. And that's, I think for me, the part of that I'm really grateful for that we've been able to show that Africans or Ghanaians or rural people are not lazy. They are not people who are clueless. They know what they want. If you create an enabling environment for them to keep the wheels going, they'll keep it going. And why do they fight for the power though? Why do they have the power? Because money is tied to power. Because in this model, they are the ones who make it possible for the money to keep coming. <laughs> you know, it's like when you meet them at a farm meeting or something and you're trying to tell them what to do, they will tell you, my friend, you are sitting in America. We are the ones who have been working on the farm. You can't come and tell us what to do. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And that, to me, is how all, all aid systems can, should be done. Now, when you think of our model and its scalability, Ghana has over 10,000 cocoa-growing communities where some close to between anywhere between 800,000, we're still not clear on the number, but the minimum is 800,000 far cocoa farmers to about 1.2 million cocoa farmers live with their families. Okay. That's a very targeted number. And those number of communities are very targeted. It means you can go into each community, $70,000 initial funding. Because we, you, when we go into a, a new community, we started with one community, we're in eight communities. In a community, we just seed $70,000. The $70,000, part of it is used to purchase an existing cocoa farm, rehabilitate it and all of that. Part of it is to, you know, for the first year, make sure that everybody has insurance, basically just set the foundation. Part of it is used to make sure that people have health insurance and all of that. But by the second year, you don't have to worry yourself. Why is that? Because the revenues from the farm will start kicking in. And we take care of things. So it becomes self-sustaining. It works. We've done this for seven years. It's what I spent the past three years at Cambridge, building evidence on. Uh, so a lot of the manuscripts around that are going to be coming out. We did this because, I mean, you know, I, like I said, I grew up on the farm. I saw the poverty. And I also just didn't like how, especially I remember when I went to Pukwari, one of the things that bothered me was people call you Krasini if you're, you're coming from the village. I mean, my mindset was like, at all of the accuracy is where the money is coming from. So if we could really shift the narrative of how we see these people and realize that without them, our economies will fail, it will be a game changer. But that's why we came up with the idea of Coco 360, right? You see the whole 360. The school, the health facility coupled into a community-based health insurance model. People work on it. And then we, we take the revenues to improve outcomes in, you know, for their own health and, uh, you know, school-based healthcare and educational needs. And it works because they have absolute control over it. Yeah. So I, I like the part of the, the agency that it gives to the people to create worlds for themselves. What I was going to ask before you had clarified that you, in the beginning, buy cocoa farms is the already existing problems in the cocoa value chain, right? We understand the problems in the cocoa value chain. The underpayment of the farmers, obviously the unsustainable practices of using children in some, in some spheres, which has its pros and cons. The big corporates not always paying what the farmers are due. How do you overcome those challenges in your model of Cocoa 360? I mean, that's a good question. So right off the bat, we are able to eliminate that challenge because the kids of these farmers 
are the ones who are in school, right? <laughs> they are the ones that you literally are a part of the model because you are there to work for your child to be in school. Exactly. So right off the bat, our model actually keeps children in school and rather brings parents to the farm. Exactly. So that question is easily dealt with. And one of the things we realized is that contrary to, you know, maybe what I think a lot of these things also very media driven. Because when I was a kid, I, I worked up with, I have my parents on the farm, you know, like, I, I, I would I call, I would never call it child labor. <laughs> like, that's just, you grow up in the village or on the farm, like, even in the city, every home and every household, parents distribute tasks amongst their children. That is just our culture, right? Now, does that mean child labor and abuse is somewhere? Maybe, just maybe. But would I call it child labor? No, hell no. Like, like it's normal. It's the same thing like my, my, my sisters will be washing bowls and things, and my brother and I will wear our boots and we go to the farm. So there's also that bit of that. But it, for the Coco 3C model, it's easily counted because you literally come to work on the farm just so that your child can be in school and your family can get health care. So that's even outside the question. And we have health insurance cards. We have a farm manager. So when people are showing up on these farms to work, you have to show up with your card. And, you know, it's like um, digital barcode. Every time you come to farm, you tap your card. It, that's how we track attendance. We know who exactly showed up <laughs> because you log in. It takes a picture of you and all of that. That's obviously the power of technology in uh, in models like ours. So that part is, you know, we, we've worked hard to, you know, deal with it. Now, back to the question of corporate cocoa prices and stuff. That's a problem. And to me, it's a problem that very much exists at the level of, like, advocacy and policy, right? And I found that you cannot move the needle on advocacy and policy until the people that are impacted by it have been empowered enough to one day wake up and be angry. So if you look at our model, we decided we have two options. We could have set up a cocoa policy initiative, and there are many of them. But I also felt that a cocoa policy initiative, it wouldn't be long before, like a cocoa policy initiative, the person running it is not going to be my father in the village or my auntie in the village. They can't run that. They'll have to go and recruit a bunch of these Ivy League kids and Cambridge people to come and sit in, their, in those ICCI's office is right there in East Legon with nice air condition. My father is not working there. The bar. <laughs> so even Cocoa Board, my father is a Cocoa Board. You and I went to Pukwari. The Cocoa Board scholarship list will come and some people you and I know, their farmers have never seen the Cocoa Farm, cocoa farm before. Their names will be on the list. And that's exactly my point. And so what I quickly realized was that we had to create a model that helped the people on the ground. It gave them a sense of age and agency and all of that. And the more that they got out of those kind of situations, maybe someday they'll move the needle in that. But we also looked at what are we trying to achieve when it comes to policy? What we're trying to achieve with policy is to better the lives of farmers. Okay. If farmers are paid well, that's the argument with, you know, increasing the prices of cocoa. Because my father and I, we have these conversations all the time. You know, he tells me it's why a lot of the farmers, for instance, will smuggle their cocoa across the border to Ivory Coast. Because... Ivory Coast has fair prices. When I was young, Santa, my father would be gone for three days. He told me he's going to Abidjan. I didn't know that's what he was doing. You understand? And did it work? Hey, some of it worked. Obviously, we are where we are. But my whole point has been policy is supposed to shift the narrative to help who? 
oftentimes the people that the policy will help are the people that big don't sit in the cocoa bot office in Accra and whatnot. They are the ones that are advocating so that they can, you know, get more government contracts and benefits and whatnot. It's like a trickle-down thing. It will start from the international cocoa trading, come to cocoa board, go to the license buying companies. Before it gets to the people working in the communities, the value is literally very much diminished. And so my stance is that the cocoa farmer is best situated to have a good livelihood, not from the argument of setting up policy institutions and all of that. Because again, what will make their lives better is not more money. What will make their life better is more good health. When they are healthy, they will be one day they will be all alive and they will get angry enough and then they will storm the cocoa board offices and then we have caused chaos there. Maybe that will get them to rise up, right? So and we see this with movements. Right. The Black Lives Matter movement drove a lot of policies, got a lot of schools to change their names. Listen, Princeton literally changed the Woodrow Wilson School of what International Affairs back to Princeton. Like that's the power of a movement. So those things work, but they were not highly, they were just black people being angry, getting on the streets and demanding. They felt empowered from a standpoint of a country that, with all of its flaws, that's a pretty good health system. So that's where we like to, you know, come from. We feel very strongly that working with the communities on the downline, partnering with them, and, you know, working with them to build innovations that get them to make sure that their families are always healthy and they are driving and, you know, building things from the ground up is more powerful. The second thing is that there are two sources of funding in the aid cocoa sustainability sector. The first pocket of funding, you will be surprised. If you are to divide, say, into three parts, I would say one third of that funding, cocoa sustainability funding, goes into policy. Two thirds go into poverty alleviation and some of these things in the cocoa communities. Hershey has earmarked, is it Mondelez? They've earmarked almost like close to a billion dollars to do with cocoa. Program, uh, so, and when you look at them, all of them are education, health, water, sanitation. So if I want to unlock resources for farmers, it makes absolute sense for me to sit on the other side and funnel a lot of those monies. All that said, I found that because of actually the work that we do, when policy initiatives have been driven, I'm invited to the table. <laughs> so I actually get to like shift and influence these things. When I was in Cambridge, Tony Strokon only came down. I They were doing their annual fest. I got to speak on their fest and spoke my mind. That would obviously not happen if I had not, you know, besides being raised as a cocoa farmer, I actually had a chance to also work with these farmers to create what we've created. So, I mean, um, I'm grateful that, you know, there, there are people that are taking on the policy solutions because we all can't solve everything. Um, but we picked the side that we picked because we felt strongly that that's where we can have the most impact. Yeah. So in this farmer-led model, community engagement is very key because you have to get them to decide what they want to do, like you've said. What is the most difficult part about dealing with people who have all their lives known one way of life and you trying to introduce them to this 
membership-oriented community so that they can help fix the most fundamental parts of their life in healthcare, education, and livelihood improvement? I mean, good question, right? Like, I always say that when we first went to the community, my friend, you know, myself, and then, you know, my, my you know, our founding team, my friends are Jacob, Julian, Maxwell, Isaac. Like, we went down there, we went to like, oh, this is how we're going to do it. Nobody minded us. They told us, you go screw yourself. You people think you have your Ivy League degrees and whatnot, so you come and tell us what to do. And even for me, who is a child of the community, I had to quickly learn that now more or less they were seeing me as a foreigner. Why is that? Because I spent some time outside and the English is no longer the Ghanaian English, you know. We left saying, how are you? When we were leaving, somebody asked you, how are you? You say, I'm fine. Thank you. And you? When we came back, if you ask me, how are you? I'm saying, I'm good. Do you understand? Like, things have changed. And so for them, that, so, of course, you know, immediately I switched my tongue back to my tree, you know, dressed like, a, basically I have to come down extremely to their level. But beyond that, was also taking a significant action, which was for us, we created what we call the village committee. So we like to call them a local board of directors, like literally. How organizations have board of directors? In Coco 3 East, the board of directorship is split into two. There is a facilitating board of directors and the implementation board of directors. The implementation board of directors are what a lot of organizations call village committee on the ground. We literally see them as a board of directors. They hold 60% of decision-making power. The board, the facilitating, which is what a lot of organizations call actual board of directors, in our case, they facilitate with their time, money, and knowledge, and all of that. They will bring insights and everything, and it's great. But then the implementers, the people on the ground who have been selected by their community, they will look at it as this one way, and fat, it will not. But having that kind of community selected, you know, representation <laughs> probably is the most significant thing that we did because it made it feel for them like an extension of how they already lived their lives. In the villages, they already do communal labor. When people are, before Zoom Lion, there was community Zoom Lions in the rural areas. Every weekend, they would gather themselves, clean their backyards, and make sure the community was healthy. They've been doing it since. Zoom Lion only added technology and broadcast and added it to it. And nice, they've made money. But I've always said, every startup is something that the rural folks have been doing for years, before we came around. So, in the same way, the communal labor, they had a, a committee that oftentimes organized it. So we had to look at that and pattern it exactly to the T so that it didn't feel any different from their staff. And so we created a village committee or what, you know, internally we call um, the first, uh, implementation board of directors. They meet, like when I'm in the community, if you, every time, most of the time you look at Coco 3C pictures, they post them a lot. They meet, they come from, the, their own community members meet and vote them. Every seven years they have to be changed but they think about things and deliberate. And so it makes it easy because when the community folks have issues, they go straight to those people though. They may not want to come to me or they may not want to come to our staff, but it's very easy for them to walk to that guy that they've known all their life, you know, to talk to him about, oh, if they did it like this, it would have been better, all of this and all of that. So for us, that has been the defining thing. We didn't go in to try to do, we didn't go in, initially we went in and we thought, oh, let's upset things. But what we quickly realized is that 
it is the end that matters. And if it is the end and the goals and the outcomes that matter, then what is the most ethical, non-invasive way we can actually achieve the same goal? And guess what? We looked at what they already had. They have their own committees and whatnot, bring people together, get things done. We use the same approach and it's been working. Yeah. You, you know, you talk about scalability. Let me just go on that. This has worked for cocoa-led communities. What about other value chains and the possibility of transferring the same insights into those value chains? Have you tried, tested it so that we can see actual mass scalability, not only in one value chain of agriculture, but potentially more, even if it is restricted to only agriculture, because we know agriculture is a major foundation of Africa's economy. Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, we're like, you know, agriculture power is like 70% of our folks are in agriculture, right, as a continent. I mean, when, when we think of our model, it can literally work in almost every setting. <laughs> it's like, because whether you, regardless of the cash crop, and when we wrote a manuscript, uh, which became a book chapter and a lot of students now use, that's one of the things that we cited, that we just wanted to show that in principle, if you have a cash crop, like rubber, like cocoa, like palm oil, like sheer nut, like jatrufa. And then you have a willing and a supportive community. And of course, we have created, you know, um, a guideline for how to actually engage the community. That's basically why I did the Cambridge PhD to put the stuff together to show that if you go into a community, this is what you need to do first. If you do this, it will not work because we have figured out what works, why it doesn't work, what doesn't work, why why it works, why it doesn't. We figured all that stuff out, um, and and every community will be different because every community will be different in terms of like the cost to set it up, but in principle, it's the same thing. If you know that you want to provide, so we start from the numbers. We currently have about 330 students. Okay, so if you're looking at 330 students and their families being enrolled into that community-based health insurance package, and you have to start with the children because their families are more connected and tied to them. They, you need to give them something they feel very emotionally connected to. If you want to create the same thing in, say, a community that grows, let's say, share not in the northern region or in the upper west region, it's the same thing. Start with the number 330. How much will it cost to give them the same health insurance package like the one that we have in the Western region, right? So you have to cost it in that context, right? What is the price of this medication? If a mother is to come and get free maternal health care, how much will it cost? You, after you cost all of those things, then you have to think, okay, this is a cost. Now we need to set up a revenue arm to come and offset those kind of things. And then once you think about the revenue arm, if the revenue arm is rubber, if the revenue arm is sheer nut, then on the revenue side, you think about, okay, this is sheer nut. The cost of this intervention, we figure to be, say, $50,000. How many acres of sheer nut will get us to that 50 acres? How many? So it's in principle, you can scale it to every context. And our job, that's why we call it a model. Our job is to create a model and a template that anybody can take and do it in other contexts. When we started, 
we got, I mean, over the years, just like Patrick aware and some of these people have done, or I think when anybody starts building an innovation, we got so many offers. Oh, come to my village in, you know, a lot of Ghanaians in the diaspora who have money. Somebody was willing to give us $1 million to go to the northern region. Another person. It's all tempting. But we told ourselves we're going to be focused. Let's figure out cocoa in one sector and be damn good at it. And let's publish the evidence about why it works and all of that. And then somebody someday will also take it. It is not only me, Shadrach, from Paradise in the world. There are also more brilliant people in other parts of the world and other parts of the country. They will also take it, but then at least they will have a guideline of exactly what to look for and all of that, and their pace and their approach will be much faster. So even now that we are thinking we are going to be scaling, uh, our scaling strategy right now is, you know, we are going to be using a technology platform where we are going to list all the cocoa communities. We are partnering with the cocoa sector. We're creating the poverty-free cocoa campaign. And there is going to be a tech platform that when you go, once you type the name of the, com uh, the, name of the community and the country, you will see the top-rated NGOs around the area that we've done due diligence and all that stuff off because we don't have to go everywhere. So we are using the McDonald's and the franchising model. It will be a digital platform. You go, you type the name of the community, you see all the top NGOs that the community, you know, in the area. You pick one. Once you pick one, you fund the innovation. Then we will do the rest of the work on the platform, right? We will delegate, and you can track the impact because there's a data reporting platform directly inbuilt in the back end. So, and Ghana alone has ten thousand cocoa, over ten thousand cocoa communities. Ivory Coast has almost thirty thousand. Indonesia has its own. So our message has been, let's build something. That's why we kept the name Cocoa Trees. Let's focus on a niche, be good at it. And then someday I want to wake up and see that somebody has figured out rubber 360 or something. Exactly. Yeah. You, you talk about evidence-based research on poverty. I mean, I can see uh, you are very keen around the science and the evidence that supports the narrative that you are trying to create. You previously served as editor for... You public health magazine, and then you've you've done a lot of papers around this. What when are some of these like, for example, your PhD paper coming out? And can you hone in on what you aim to achieve with the evidence, with the research, um, in the coming year? Are you trying to build a blueprint of how to build community-based organizations that are focused on turning around poverty? What's the bigger aim in that particular research-oriented? perspective. I mean, we've talked about what you're already doing on the ground. So I want to talk about the academia and what you want to receive to it. Do you want to become a lecturer? What, what, what? Oh, no, that's great. I mean, of course, I like to joke and say that me in a perfect world, I want to be, I want to be a tripartite guy like this, be professor, neurosurgeon, billionaire. That's my goal. The money part has to be there because I never want to be going to people begging for money. Never. I want to have my own money and build at my own pace. Exactly. Think about it. Every year, everybody in the global health and development space is going to these big foundations. But the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I was a Gates Cambridge scholar. Bill Gates could become a billionaire because he took the time to become a billionaire. At, you know. So I feel strongly and thankfully there is a, it's not a lot, but there's a few professor billionaires around and there's also there's some, a lot of physician billionaires. But I like to see things from those three sides because if you don't have the academic side, then it's like all about feelings and good intentions. It's why we have a lot of people in the space who are always like, oh, 
I want to go back and save Africa. You know, if you go on Amazon right now, you see books of people saying, oh, literally the other day I went to Amazon, I saw a book titled, they called me Mama Katie. And on front of the page is a white woman with African kids holding her legs. And it's a bestseller. What the hell, man? Like, stuff like that. It's all about good feelings and good intentions. And then, if anybody speaks against these things, they will say, what are you doing? At least they are doing something. Well, what I tell them is that not all good is good. And this is why academia is important. A lot of the solutions in you know, the development space and global health space, they are all addressing the symptoms and not the root causes. And if you focus on addressing symptoms or not root causes, you're going to have a lot of dangerous unintended consequences. And I always give the example of you know, Tylenol and uh, using Tylenol and paracetamol for, to solve malaria. That's crazy. If somebody has, when somebody has a pain, they will feel feverish. When somebody has malaria, they will also feel feverish. Yes. But if you give that person who has malaria a pain medication like Tylenol, in the short term, immediate term, it will do with their fever and they will be good. So you think, oh, I've attacked it and they are doing well and everything is great. But number one, have you cured the malaria? Because malaria is caused by plasmodium parasites. The parasites are there and they're having fun. That's number one. In fact, and number two, because you use the wrong medication, you'll literally be causing you know, antimicrobial resistance. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll, like, you'll be even worsening the case, right? You're even like, emboldening these guys because uh, these microbes. And it's the same thing with poverty alleviation. We can't cut corners and we can't just say, Oh, it's good. And this is why after all the monies in global aid, we've pumped and we've pumped and we've pumped, poverty is still existing because a lot of the things folks have been attacking are roots, are, are symptoms and not the root challenges. And so for me, but if you, if you have the science, if you know the ac ac academia, you can actually know what root issues to be attacking and how best to attack it. A patient will only fall prey to using Tylenol to address what is malaria if they didn't go to somebody who has actually studied to become a pharmacist or a doctor. It's the same kind of mindset. So for me, that's why academia becomes very important. And academia is also important because, you know, when you're doing the work in these fields, you see questions come up. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, why is this happening? And how do you resolve it? Like, we could have just shut up and done the cocoa tree still work, but we would never have been, have been able to scale because we wouldn't have understand why do people go to farm? Why don't people go to farm? Why is it not working? Do they care more about the health part or the education part? Would they rather we tell them to pay upfront with all of their money? If you went into a new community, what is do we need to keep in place? So the science also helps and it never stops. It's very important to make sure that you always you know, learning, improving, and giving the people the best that they deserve. Now, when it comes to, personally, from an academic standpoint, what I want to do, one of the books that I'm working on right now is around community engagement, which is literally something I spent my whole career, you know, writing on, written a lot of, you know, peer-reviewed manuscripts on. I've looked at the community engagement during the Ebola crisis. When you look at the Ebola crisis, for instance, that systematic review we did, we basically showed that what stopped the pandemic was communities taking charge and just doing things themselves. It was not some Western money. And we published that paper in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases.
So I've written a lot of manuscripts to this effect. And I see it, of course, in Cocoa Trees this way. So for me, fundamentally, my goal is to write a book just like Ibrahim Kendi has done, right? Kendi has written, you know, how to be anti-racist. One of the manuscripts I'm working on based on all the academia experience and everything is how to be an anti-savior. Before you get your ass up and you go to Ghana, you have to read that book. Don't go and cause more havoc than it initially was. A lot of people also think that, oh, because I'm Ghanaian, I have the right, I'm not a savior. It doesn't matter. If even me, who grew up in Takabermai, in my village, if I woke up one day and I taught, I knew how to address a solution in another rural community, I'm acting like a savior. Because it is not about race or anything. It's about assuming that you understand somebody's lived experience simply because you, live, you, 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 you look like them. And so, but there's no manuscript. There's nothing. That's why we have all these issues. Everybody just gets up in the whole development sector. Everybody just gets up and boom, gets on the flight. We are going to change Mother Africa. Well, thank you. That's what I want to put a book. That's going to be my first book I've been working on. It's going to come out sometime in the next year. But fundamentally, it's going to be a book that guides people. If you have Ghanaian and you've lived abroad for a long time, how do you interact with our people when you go back down? To work in the development sector. If you're a white person, how do you interact? Because nobody is inherently bad. That's my belief. The problem is people don't have guidance on how to exactly engage our people well and be able to partner with these communities to develop sustainable and long-lasting solutions. So that's the very first you know, book that you know, I've been working on. And for the long term, the other book would obviously be you know, around Cocoa Trees, this model. A lot of that really is going to be in evidence. We are working, myself and a couple of faculty here at Yale, in fact, we'll go to Ghana in November. But what we're working is to set up a center for sustainable global health here at Yale and just put up the principles of, you know, sustainably engaging communities and developing sustainable innovations and keep researching it. So we want to put, get a center like that here at Yale and keep building the evidence Putting up a center makes sure that things keep going long after nobody is here because nobody's going to be here forever. And at some point, somebody has to come and continue that work of impact-generated evidence. So that's how I see a lot of this academic work. A lot of it will evolve in other writings over the years. But in the immediate and in the short term, that's what I want to see. And of course, I definitely love academia. I, I see myself like a, an academic physician. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the entrepreneurship part will always be there, but it will always be just for, uh, what do you call it, in my opinion, like founder, chairman, just sit on these boards and guide people because I love the strategy part, but I don't think I'm gifted with the ability to execute businesses. Yeah. I have a, a question that might be to an extent controversial, but I'm just wondering how you look at it in terms of when you say about a development space, it sounds like as a base premise, you, you think the will to actually solve the problem does exist and it's a guidance problem or how do you think about this? It's a guidance problem, really. It's like that. You, you just nailed it. There is like, you know, there's nobody, think about it. People leave the comfort of their homes in the West and they go work in some of these areas to drive impact. It would be remiss to think that they literally are just evil people and then, you know, they want to take advantage of Africa. I mean, that's the... So coming from that anger place, for me, has never done it for me. 
it, it is just they have good intentions, but we have to guide them with the evidence, with the literature, and with the practicalities. And that's why I, for a long time, I kept asking myself, why am I the person to write a book like this? Then I realized, oh, because I grew up in poverty, I was like an aid beneficiary, like literally, right? I've been an aid beneficiary, and I've gone to some of the best schools to study this thing, and I've actually had a chance to work with the communities to actually develop something. So it's like seeing it from all these sides. And then I kept thinking, oh, okay, then we can actually put something together to guide people. When people have a manual, it's like right now, the way I like to see the development space or the global international, it's like you, so people, it's like going to buy a refrigerator and there's no manual how to run it. And so people are trying to, you know, everything they can, but they are not inherently bad. That's my opinion. Um, of course, in every scenario, there are always going to be bad people. Even our own people, some people are bad. Some of our own politicians are screwing our people up. You understand? And so I figured that I like to, I, I like, I choose to believe the best in people. And that means that putting up a guidance so that people can take and then it shows them the way. Here is how you're supposed to do. Here is how you, exactly. Um, but currently nothing like that exists. But I mean, you have definitely looked far deeper into it than anybody. But from a layman's perspective, I mean, I do not necessarily think it's like bad will. But I'm also sometimes thinking that might be an oversimplification. But if you look at, let's say, another country and you want to solve a problem, I think it's why would you not just look at, for instance, if I want to do something in the Ghanaian market, I look into it. I study what is happening already, who is finding the solution. And then, for instance, I realize, OK, Shadrach is doing something good. And the next thing would be. I will now approach Shadrach and start to engage rather than me thinking that I can find the solution, let's say, for your community. So, of course, if I do not approach, let's say, Shadrach, it doesn't necessarily say I have a bad will, but maybe, for instance, maybe my priority is to feel good about it. Maybe my priority is to say what I have done so well. Maybe there is a misunderstanding, but in that misunderstanding or the simplification, there's still, let's say, some level of arrogance to assume that you might not be able to solve it. That's, that is what maybe like a bit where my headspace is from, let's say, a more layman's perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I, I, I think I see where you're coming from. It, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, in many ways, the reason why in the for-profit space we do that is because, think about it, there's an incentive of investor money and all of that. And so, naturally, you don't want to start out and lose. Whereas in the NGO space, the impact, people like any kind of impact is impact. That's why I spend time explaining why people must really, you have to do things intentionally. Because not every impact is impact. The wrong impact can cause unintended consequences. We have the case of uh, Liberia, where a couple of years back, there was this NGO there, more than me, that got shut down. Because one, it turns out one of their staff members had HIV and was sleeping around with the young girls in the school. Okay, you went to go and educate people. Before you went, they may not have been having A-class education, but they certainly didn't have HIV. You went and now you left them with HIV. That's what I mean by unintended consequences. And it's happening all the time. So the problem, the difference clearly between the for-profit and the non-profit is that in the for-profit, the ultimate goal is let's make money. In the non-profit, the ultimate goal is impact. 
It's like an impact investor in your typical venture capitalist. So that's where the difference comes in. And to your point, there are some NGOs that will tell you, oh, they do underground research and all of that. We've seen a couple of them. But the problem is that even those that do the research, when I was in Opukwari, I used to like see a lot of NGOs that would come to Ghana, do community research and whatnot. They will say they are going to the northern region to go and do community research, but they will be sitting at the back of our Form 2 block and they will be filling the service and the questions. They are not talking to the community. They are answering the questions and when they are done, they will upload it and send it back to, you know, that NGO that wants to come and is doing the feasibility research. Right. So even folks who try, they think of it from an angle. I kid you not. Every now and then, I always get a message from somebody in the West on LinkedIn that will say, oh, I want to go to Ghana to do this. You are the one from Ghana. I thought I would speak to you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm from Ghana, but I'm not from that village you want to go and work in. I don't understand anything there. Like, me being Ghanaian, that's not mean that I'm, I'm an East Ligon boy. Like, I'm not, <laughs> you understand? If you wanted to go do something in East Ligon, go there and spend time, talk to the people and listen, if it's really that important to you. And that's a problem we have, right? So, there's a bit of, Arrogance, I would say, because in the aid sector, everything is money powered. It's people, they literally, donors feel as though they are doing you a favor, right? Like I'm doing you a favor by giving you money. And one of the things that I, I show in the book, there is a chapter where I show that aid benefits both parties. There's a lot of studies done to show that people give selfishly. They give because it makes them feel good. They give because it helps them to secure new positions and everything. They give because, so it's not a one-sided thing that when you give to the person that needs your help, both parties need help. It's an exchange, not a one-way transaction. Establishing these things and making it clear, sometimes I have so much to write, but I'm like, damn it. Probably maybe I put it in a book. Um, it's going to be easier. But to your point, there's a measure of arrogance also because of how funding or donations are perceived. You see, in the for-profit space, it's not like that. Investors know it's a two-way street, though. Yeah, they know if they give you the money and you become a unicorn. What's going to happen? They're going to make their money back. <laughs> Nobody ever felt that they were doing Mark Zuckerberg a favor. In fact, those who didn't give to him are now kicking themselves. Their <laughs> right? Imagine if we had the same mindset in the social impact space. If we had an investment mindset. But that's, that's the problem. And that's why I don't understand when people are against capitalism and all that. To me, they are just tools. In fact, I would very much wish that the social impact sector is capitalistic. Why? Because it would make the community folks be seen and respected as important stakeholders. And then the donor will be seen as an investor. And then it will be win-win. And people will respect each other. Daggling about it from the perspective of feelings and impact doesn't do anybody good. Like... Sometimes it's actually frustrating. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Very excellent, but also very politically incorrect, I guess, as from people. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I know I'm politically incorrect. So. Yeah, me. I but see we love that. We love that. Every, every, to me, everything in the world is like a tool. You know, I know people like to slap labels on things, but somebody will say, oh, fire is a bad thing. When did fire become a bad thing? You need fire to cook your food. 
but it can also burn down your house. It's a tool, right? Almost everything is a tool in this world. It depends on your perspective of it. Yeah. So we always have to look at the context and see the thing as a tool. If you see the context and ask the people, will it help them or not? Would they want to be part of it or not? Then the next thing is seeing however you do it as a tool. If you are not killing them, if you are not harming them, if you are not ethically infringing upon anybody's rights, life is good. It doesn't help to wake up every day. Listen, the people that write that capitalism is bad, they, they've written bestseller books and they are making money of it. Think about the irony. You say capitalism is bad, but you have written a bestseller and you have, you have become a billionaire because of that or a multi-billionaire because of your book on capitalism. Are you too not capitalistic? That one is hypocritical. <laughs> Me, this is why... I think maybe that's one of the benefits of growing up in Ghana or growing up poor because it made me blunt and I just look at things as they are. If it is white, it is white. If it is black, it is black. Will it help people? Do people care? Is it win-win? Let's live life like that. Poor people power the global development industry. The poverty industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Go and look at NGO salaries. You know, if you go on Kiva right now, their CEO is paid about $900,000 a year. How much does the CEO of even CocoBot get a year? Yes. Kiva is a charity though. It's a charity. And the CEO takes almost 900k a year. Make it make sense to me. I don't understand. So, but hey, are you, there are people who are mad about it. I say, why are you mad? Are they doing what they said they set out to do? Yes. Are they raising more money and changing, you know, the, the agreement they set out to do, socialism, are they doing it? If you really mark all these things and people's lives have been transformed and everything is going on, why? <laughs> There's nothing wrong. Yeah. So for me, that's my stance. Because if I get that 900,000, oh, I go like them. I used to build a new road in my village the next day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about, I mean, we had a very brilliant, insightful conversation is that for people that know you as uh, someone like me, I've known your journey for a very long time. I would maybe call it an obsession, right? You have always wanted to become a medical professional, a doctor, and you've taken a very long road. You've, in your tribute to some of the co-founders you've had, you talk about all of them and all of them are in either residences, completed medical school. It took a very difficult journey for you to get here eventually, and you were in your first year at, at the U. How difficult was that for you to deal with personally on an emotional level, on an accomplishment level, knowing that you really, really wanted to become a doctor and that journey too, how do you think has shaped you? But I want to really hone in on how difficult it was for you not having achieved that, especially earlier on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting, right? They always say hindsight is twenty twenty, But like nowadays, I say I'm exactly like where I am, and that's an advice I give to a lot of people. It's fine because my medical school, sometimes they, they think I'm like so young, obviously because, you know, it's like <laughs> the more I age, the more it's like, you know, I start looking good, which is funny. So I look young in my class. People like sometimes I have to tell them, yo, I'm this old, you know, and they're like, are you really? Or somebody will be like, oh my God, I Googled you and saw X, Y, Z. Like, you're not just a student. Fire. But my whole point has been that it was very hard. I mean, going through it, when you're going through it, obviously it's hard, right? Like nobody. And I'm a Christian, so that I understand the Bible verse that says, 
count it all joy when you go through trials and tribulations. The Bible didn't say count it all joy when you go through happiness and fun. It used the phrases trials and tribulations because they're exactly that. They're painful. <laughs> In the moment where you're going through them, like apply to med school, get rejected, like very frustrating. But my mindset has always been, you know, I was very fortunate to be raised by, like I said, you know, parents that were wisdom-wise very wealthy. My mother's view on life has always been, there's never a no. If you really want something and it will do good for others and for yourself, there's never a no. It's always a not yet, you know. So when I first apply, I never get it. You know, later, I mean, now I realize people have done research on it, call it growth mindset and all that. But I've been growing up in the village. That's how my partner explained it. And I took it and I believed in it. It didn't work out. I didn't rush. You know, a lot of people, they would have kept applying and all that. When I applied that one time, they didn't, I took a step back. Okay, how do I, you know, shift things and, you know, position myself very strongly? And I realized because the first time I went through the process, I didn't come off this passionate. Like, I didn't come off this blunt. Here's one thing I've learned. The world loves authentic people. Like, nobody loves people that are cooked and all that. You know, my political incorrectness, people love it. Because I'm just me. You take it or you leave it. I'm not trying to make you happy. Like, that's me. Anybody that has met me, you, if you don't know from Pokwari, I've always been a fireball like this. I speak my mind. I don't care if you like me or not. I'm just good. And guess what? Over time... The world actually, people actually wish that I wish I was like this person because their true self, they are hiding it. So for me, it was also like a personal growth journey because it's only my first master's that when I was doing, I didn't understand. I was so pissed because right around the same time, applying in 2018, got rejected. 2019, started that new master's. So I was very pissed. I was like, what the hell am I doing? Da, 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 da. Even at my graduation, I was valedictorian. In fact, I posted that picture. I was a valedictorian of the program. My father was there. They said we should come to graduation. I said, hell no, I'm not going. Because that's not what I want, man. Like, in that same graduation we are going, I'm going to see medical students graduating. No, then I'm not going. <laughs> like, so, you know, but, you know, I think after my first master's, I said, screw it. Whether it happens or not. So that's another reason why I recently released that video on YouTube because it's what, it became what I, it led me to one of my, my first principle. Never ever chase anything in life. It's literally useless. Because if you chase something, it is riding away from you. And when I was younger, I was chasing that dream. But the more I chased it, it was riding away from me. So what did I do? I surrendered and I let it go. I'm like, screw it. I don't care. Instead of, I want to be a doctor so bad, schools must admit me. I said, the world would be very lucky if I became a medical doctor, though. You see, it shifted. The world needs me. I don't need, I don't need anything. Like, I went, it, it's funny. And the more I did that, the world opened up, you know. I took my time. I was enjoying life, man. I did the uh, Yale Master's in Public Health. The more I did it, I kept asking questions. Okay, why is the global sector like this and all that? It was just now even enjoying life and being curious. Then during my master's at Cambridge, uh, Yale, it's when I realized, man, it would be nice to build evidence around this cocoa tree sitting. Because if I rush and I go to med school, med school is very all-consuming. I'll not find time to do anything else again. So let me do this PhD and build evidence before I even continue. Either that or I'll have to apply for MD-PhD programs. So I went to Cambridge and I did the PhD. When I was done, I came right back and did the medicine. It's funny. And then doing my PhD is when I came up with, you know, the idea for a startup 
I raised angel funding at a $3 million valuation, recruited a team. It's still instilled, you know, and it's doing very well. We've closed some significant revenues and it's not Coco 3C. Most people don't even know it. But my whole point is that it gave me the life now I have and I'm very, very happy. I'm exactly where I need to be because if I'd done it younger, being in medical school, now I know one thing. Medicine makes you very like this, like very narrow. You only have to think one way. It's like it trains you to think of the individual patient and their condition. When you see a patient, you are thinking, do they have diabetes? Do they do this? You are not thinking any big picture. No, it doesn't. It's not how it's set up to train you. So for me, it all works out. But I mean, I think the biggest part of it, and that's why I always encourage everybody, is having a, the right perspective. You know, you may see it. Of course, it's important that even the part where you see it as a challenge, that also has to happen. So that as, when you later mature and you see it differently, then you know that, oh man, in the, now when, nowadays I don't, it's like now, like nothing really phases me. If I see some trouble, like, bro, like, I'm very relaxed, I'm chill. I never chase something. I'm never, it's always like, okay, you need me, how can I help? Is it win-win? Are you happy? If you're happy, life goes on. And it's, 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 it's good. It's good. But I think it eventually also happened because of, I had the right reasons for doing it. But it was not healthy that you chase. That's my point. We all have dreams and goals and aspirations. And if we can see it from the perspective of, I want to do it because I wanted to go to medical school. Because what my vision has always been, by the time I leave this earth, I want to build Ghana and the continent. You know, first, first mission focus, rural teaching hospital and medical school to train the next generation of doctors who just focus on treating people in rural areas. We complain about getting doctors in rural areas, but we then forget that the doctors that we want to go to rural areas probably grew up in East Legon. If I grew up in East Legon, why do you want me to go to the Northern region to go and practice? It won't work. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's understanding these things. It's only the people that have grown up in those contexts that will understand and better be able to serve their own people. And I came to med school because I wanted to get the knowledge and be able to go back and lead that charge. That's something I'm very excited about. So I always had the right interest. I love serving people. You know, like you said earlier, I spent all my life just like setting up initiatives to help people, support and all that. Altruism is the very core of like something I like to identify with. But then the way to get it, if you chase it, it's going to run away from you. You, you just got to... It's like now one of my friends will come, Charlie, I see this fresh girl. I want to talk to her. What do they think? I say, Charlie, you have to see yourself as, you know, worthy. Like, you deserve it. Stop chasing your call and the chairs every time. Bro, <laughs> she'll run very for the hills. Like, why is this guy so desperate? But if you are chill, you know, this is my number. Call me when you need me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like... You know, here are some couple of days. When you are ready, let's go get lunch. See, I'm giving guys tips. <laughs> that's, but that's for everything in life. <laughs> if you get some fresh girl where they like, take care from the pedestal because she, no human being actually likes that though. Yeah, I me mean, when I meet people on the street, like, oh my god, are you shadow football? Trust me, I hate it. That's why I like this conversation. It was easy for me to warm up because. You started from a place where we all like, you know, we vibe. We went to the same high school. Let's say, because at the end of the day, we all pee. We go to the toilet. Bro, we do all these things. We are all human beings. There's nothing 
special. Like, like, and that's everything in life, though. Yeah, I'll meet people who's like, they want to go to Harvard. I'm like, yeah, you have to think that Harvard needs you. You don't need Harvard. What do you need them for? You know how many people who have come into this world and go to Harvard? It's not special. <laughs> so that's what I made of that experience. Yeah. Now, Shadrach, aside from Pong, has an honorary PhD, two master's degrees, one undergrad degree, and is pursuing medicine and is also giving out free relationship advice. <laughs> A huge round of applause. <laughs> yeah, yeah, A huge yeah. round of applause for Shadrach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah man. It's not leaving the voice out. It's not leaving the voice out. <laughs> no, but this has been this has been an insightful conversation around education, healthcare, community development, and the wonderful work that Shadrach has done now gunning towards a decade and in that space of impact community healthcare. Shadrach again, let me repeat that so people know we went to a good school, went to Okokuari school. <laughs> and we were able to be happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they will not be happy, but we have to let them know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, Shadrach, thank you very much for coming. Um do you have any last words that you want to you want to say before we end the conversation? Well, I mean, it's all good. I mean, the only thing, I mean, again, thanks to you guys for, you know, setting this up to you all and Tim. I think this is phenomenal. People should just, sometimes I tell people and I'm like, listen, man, should you get a mentor? I don't think people need mentors. You should only find a mentor for maybe something technical, but mentor for life, I'm not too sure about that um, because you have to make mistakes and learn from them and just, you know, um, build up. And then my other view is, just be patient and, you know, enjoy life. Like, so long as you live life and you have the right mindset, you're not trying to harm another human being, you know, the the law of, you know, good karma or whatever they call it. You're not trying to harm another person or take away from them. I think life eventually always figures itself out. That's on the personal level. On the bigger level, I found that nobody can really change the world until they've changed themselves. Uh, people who are very busy trying to change the world. Then you dig into their life and realize they have a lot of skeletons in their cupboard. Eventually, it's only a matter of time, you know, some of these things always find themselves out. So I'm a very big proponent on self-development and, you know, people being, like, ruthless, like, I general, like, crazy, something I've done, possibly from even my time at the worst. When you're able to change yourself, to me, the world is like a mirror. It will start, you know, also changing itself. Your world literally transforms. And if you want to go into impact, it's the same way. You have to think of the other people, put yourself in their shoes. Like Daniel said, a lot of people in impact, they come from that arrogant side. Right now, the way it is approached, it's almost like somebody just wakes up and then they just walk into somebody's house and they say, I'm here. I'm going to show you how to take care of your house. Like, you know how insulting that is. But that's how impact is done. So we also have to have the humility to learn from the communities and their wisdom. Their ways can sometimes, in my opinion and my experience, sometimes even better than what we think we know is best for them. It's also important to see them as partners. If you notice when I was speaking, most of them like, the community we work with, we, I don't work for any community or do anything for, it's a partnership. I learn a lot from them. And, you know, they also share a lot of their insights. Would I be able to have the career I have if there were no communities to research and build evidence and get to know? Hell no, right? So... It's, it's been a, a mutually uh, beneficial relationship.
our generation, we have a lot of opportunities to just transform our continent. I mean, you see from Nigeria, a lot of great things that have been done on there, you know, people building, building, you know, these unicorns and whatnot. I don't know, it doesn't matter whether it's in social impact, whether it's in the for-profit sector, whether you even you choose to work for some established entity. We are all different and wired differently and our brain responds to different things. There's no right or wrong way. But the most important thing is you got to give it your best, you know, and be authentic. Like one of the, my biggest gripes when I go to Ghana is we have a culture that acknowledges silence, which I have a big issue with. I always say that Ghana is the only country I know where if somebody speaks quietly and slowly, naturally they adapt, they adapt humble. I don't understand that thing. What has somebody, the way somebody talk got to do with the strength of their character? I don't understand. And it's funny. And so we have become a nation where people are largely psychophants. But you have to realize that the person that is trying to be liked is from an egotistical place. They're trying to be humble all of those because they want people to like them. It's no different from the person that's naturally arrogant and also people don't like them. Those are all ego. The writing, just be yourself and forget about the rest of the world. Focus on being right and not being liked. That's probably the biggest thing. Because I think that the world can benefit our generation. If we can find more people who are very authentic, speak truth to power, also acknowledge when they are not, you know, right. We are in 20, if Kwame Kuma and those people did what they did back then. Me, one of my fr my friends, they will tell you one of my popular quotes every time I go to Ghana is, Kwame Kuma has suffered in vain. No. The guy has suffered. Every time I tell them Kwame Kuma break, they will start laughing. I say, listen, man, the guy came back, studied overseas and came back to do all these things. <laughs> Only for you guys every day to be holding your waist, screaming and saying, my father, my father. You don't even like your biological father anymore. We are crazy. Listen, the pedestalization, the psychophancy, all of those things, we need to stop. In fact, people, and then we have to be pragmatic and build a country because we are the only people who can. Nobody will come and do it. If we hope and expect somebody will come and do it, it will never happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my last message is for, you know, the wonderful Ghanaians that are overseas. Those that leave the country and they go and study. We fall into a trap of always going back and thinking that we know better than the folks there. But a lot of what we do, if we are being honest, is imported stuff. The fact that you have a degree, like if you are me, you have a degree from Yale or what, it does not make you anything. You are nothing. You, you are nothing special. If you go to Ghana, or say Kwame Despite still has more money than you at the end of the day. And Despite does not have a Yale or Harvard degree. He's chilling. <laughs> so we need to learn that. And, you know, to me, it's just authenticity, humility, and true humility to me, just being yourself, choosing to be right and not to be liked. Um, but that's about it. I am very excited about the future of our continent. Um, and, yeah, we'll do great things. And, of course, finally, shout out to all the wonderful folks at Coco 360 and, you know, our teams that we get to work with. I, those guys are the real MVPs. See, we are sitting on this call chilling. You know where they are? They are crossing rivers and walking like two miles to go see parents. I love those people so much. Yeah. And thanks again for organizing this. Yeah. Thank you very much. This has been the Change Africa podcast conversation with Shadrach Osai from Pawn. 
who is currently a medical student at Yale Medical School, but has a deep expertise in pioneering models for impact and community-oriented development. Um, it's been an amazing pleasure speaking with him. Thank you very much, Shadrach, for coming to the Genyafka podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, too. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yarstratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quaid and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media.